This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Tyler Dick and Brandon Good. Tyler and Brandon are the co-founders of Outro Health. Outro is the first digital healthcare solution dedicated to safely discontinuing psychiatric medications, starting with antidepressants. In this episode, we discuss their background at Field Trip Health, why are there so many antidepressants prescribed, why there is a gap in assisting people getting off antidepressants, and the strategy behind their business model. Please enjoy my conversation with Tyler Dick and Brandon Good. Tyler, I really like to start with your background. So you kind of went the CPA route, you ended up at KPMG, kind of more like that corporate experience. What led you to kind of take that first step into corporate world, but then ultimately you ended up more in kind of a startup land. So how'd that work out? Very similar to how I'm a Montreal Canadiens fan living in Toronto. Um, (laughs) In that my dad was a CPA and my dad was a Habs fan. So um, yeah, I I think I wanted to be a CPA as early as the first grade. It was, I think there was two professions on that list. One was an NHL player, which didn't quite work out. And the other one was a, uh, a CPA. So was it something that necessarily interested me? No, I ended up at KPFG, which is the same firm my dad was at. So when it comes to uh, matching what my dad did, I, I nailed it out of the park. Um, 
but yeah, early on, you know, in KPMG just found out that, uh, it wasn't quite for me. Um, I didn't mind it. There was definitely certain parts that I enjoyed. Uh, you learn a lot in, in a very small amount of time and depending on the, you know, the jobs you're on, it, it is very kind of relatable to the startup world. Um, so for me, you know, one thing I did recognize that I enjoyed at KPMG was being the guy that was on, you know, a new file, you know, building out that file for the first time versus just, you know, looking at what they did last year and kind of copying those same, those same results. And so, um, yeah, a couple of years into the, into the firm, I, you know, really realized it wasn't for me. Uh, unfortunately it, it took an antidepressant description of my own, which we can get into later to, to really realize this, um, always kind of loved to build things as a kid. Um, thought maybe, you know, take the finance background I have and, and get into the startup world and maybe I could find something that I really enjoyed there and kind of all worked out that way. And I'd love to quickly touch on some of those roles you had. So you were at Chef's Plate and there was kind of acquisition, merger there with like HelloFresh and also kind of field trip health. So I guess you mentioned there was some similarities to being kind of at a startup when you're at KPMG, but was there kind of any learning curve joining more of the finance side at a tech startup? Probably a bit less of a learning curve than, than some others coming out of the firm, just because like I said, like my, you know, I spent the last year at KPMG, um, as the in charge on the audit of Tim Hortons Canada. So it was, you know, just a massive file. I was really young at the time, you know, typically a job that a second or third year accountant would be doing. And I was in my first, um, so I was kind of thrown into the fire there and we had to build everything from scratch and we had to build it quickly, uh, under a lot of, uh, you know, pretty extreme circumstances extremely long hours, lots of pressure. Um, so making that transition to, to that first startup at HelloFresh wasn't, wasn't too bad. Um, but there's always a learning curve. Um, you know, I got there. I don't think anything was really built. I took finance from, you know, outsourced, uh, to a team of eight over 18 months. So of course there's gonna be a learning curve with that experience. Um, yeah, it wasn't too bad. I guess, what are some like fundamentals that you've learned from your time as a CPA at KPMG that have really maybe added kind of like an edge to you as like a founder from like, a, is that like just really understanding financials super well, accounting, I guess, like, what is that edge that it's given you? I think I've always been kind of the all hands on deck type of guy, like growing up playing hockey, playing sports. I just like to you know, get whatever needs to be done and done. You know, when I first took that first job at HelloFresh as I think it was a manager of finance title and I worked my way up to director of finance. But in that first interview, it was really like, we need somebody to sweep the floors and clean up the garbage and, and take out all the expired food out of the basement, you know? And like that, that wasn't, that was on me. And I, I actually loved that part of the job. Um, I think I, you know, those early HelloFresh days, maybe 50% of my job was finance and the other 50% was just keeping the lights on, you know, organizing the office move as we scaled, um, really just doing all the dirty work that doesn't really fall on anyone else's plate is, is one thing I've always just really enjoyed. And I, you know, same thing happened at Field Trip Health. You know, um, I think the, the founders always joked about how many hats I was wearing at a given time. Um, love wearing hats. Um, and so I think that's one edge I've had. And, and in, in, you know, in conjunction with that, just being very comfortable with the chaos and, you know, being comfortable not spending 100% of the time on the financials, but, you know, just knowing, you know, what needs to be done really at a minimum to get by at that stage of the business, right? I think that's, that's really what it comes down to is, is being comfortable, you know, with being uncomfortable. And I think that's probably 
one of the biggest things that, you know, especially coming out of an accounting firm, uh, I can see being an issue for people who, you know, get into startups. And I have seen that in my experience, you know, coming over, you know, somebody coming over from a big company and just not being able to really get comfortable with that chaos. And you touched on field trip health there. I think we'll maybe just jump yeah. quickly into Brandon's background. And I know you two most likely met at field trip health. So I think that'll be a nice segue after, but Brandon, uh, what was the, what was your interest in health, even from like university days? And I saw that you did some psychedelic assisted and some headspace projects at your kind of first role. Did that kind of shape you into kind of what you did at field trip health and now at like outro seems to be kind of like a, a thread there. I've, um, always been interested in, uh, I guess it started with like an interest in science. Um, when I was a kid, I was a big animal kid, even went to zoo camp. And zoos are kind of controversial now. I don't know, I love And um, yeah, I was always interested in the sciences, life sciences. Um, not only influence from my, my grandpa. Um, the first few years of my life, he was an entrepreneur in the, uh, he is an entrepreneur, had his own business for like 50 years now. In like the engineering, HVAC space big environmentalist, so I kind of got this, this Mr. Rubin thing since I was younger. Um, and then I thought I was going to go into medicine through just personal experiences. Like where do you apply your interest in science and trying to make the world a better place? The default was going into pre-med. Um, but then I got interested in philosophy and I had moved less on a soccer scholarship. So I got to see what the difference was between Canada and America. And that was very fascinating, you know, just like a little an hour drive away to Connecticut. Why are the two countries so different in some ways, uh, for better or for worse? And yeah, then I just kind of jumped around. Uh, my soccer chapter of my life came to an end. I wanted to get the more inside out, kind of figuring, what do I do with a biology degree, a master's in public policy and global health? really change things. I thought of the W the WHO would have been a dream job for a long time, but then I realized, you know, that's, that's the WHO, but they do, and they do a lot of good stuff. Sorry, WHO, but I don't know. It just, it didn't seem like the impact I wanted to make. And so I popped around at New York city department of health, a nanomedicine laboratory, uh, as an analyst, the job at a big pharma company Nova Nordisk in Denmark. I never had quite a keen eye for Big Pharma, which might not be a surprise to people, but um, I wanted to understand, you know, the other side, kind of see where the sausage is made, so to speak. And I learned a lot there uh, at their headquarters. I was working on, um, I was working on the obesity um, market development strategy, the anti-obesity medications, which everybody knows now, the GLP-1s, and I got this market be created and also help in the creation of that market. Though I was trying to bring a lot more room into health focus things rather than just a biomedical focus and see the threads starting to be woven. And yeah, I, I riding my bike to work one day in wholesome Danish fashion, listening to a podcast about, uh, from Gabor Mate, a fellow Canadian, and on the relationship trauma and addiction. It was just so obvious once I heard it. And he mentions, there was a mention, that's why psychedelics seem quite effective 
causes. Uh, and so really fascinated by that. And I was working on these obesity products and I started diving into the relationship between mental health and obesity, not just looking at obesity like this metabolic imbalance they were literally pushing, but rather how can we look at it kind of fundamentally? And I, I learned, let's say, uh, the researcher who invented the adverse childhood events questionnaire, he actually ran an obesity medicine practice at Kaiser Permanente in California in the uh, 80s. And he could help people lose a lot of weight. And then he'd follow up with them a year or two later and they would have gained it all back. He did more qualitative research and realized that 55% of his patients were sexually abused as kids. But that wasn't any of the discussion going on in pharmaceutical. Right. So when I saw the opportunity at Field Trip, it actually so happened I, uh, you know, it was in Denmark when the Raptors won NBA playoffs and I was feeling so homesick. And I was like, okay, I, want, I know I want to work in psychedelics. There was a bunch of cannabis. Uh, are there any companies yet? Yeah, so I Googled psychedelic company Toronto and saw a huge announcement starting out. So I researched those guys, what I did, what I was interested in, the work I had been doing with Imperial College, designing psilocybin study for obesity. And then I joined them as the first employee. Uh, yeah, and then I met Tyler a couple months later and was wearing many hats like Tyler, like Tyler said. And being as you see time they didn't really have a game plan that they brought us on for so uh yeah i guess the last thing why the personality led to this is i i did probably like my three years at the pharma company did like four or five personality tests very few people ever use them i remember one guy posted up on his second monitor and i was like you're a good leader and um one test we did the Enneagram seems a little bit funky, but I think is useful piece of reflection and helped me figure out why I wasn't a fit there. Um, got like 27 types. My type was called the iconoclast. It, and I, I Googled it to make sure I know what it means, but it's a person who attacks cherished beliefs, traditional institutions, etc., as being based on error or superstition. So that's kind of what I have fun doing. Um, and outro like well like whoever wants to take this question but i'm very curious i always love to learn a bit more about like the origin story how it started so both of you are at field trip health working on the psychedelic assisted medicine there did you two just kind of start talking over lunch or after work and you're like hey like hey we have these similarities and we think there's this gap in the market i'd love to learn a bit more about the kind of origin story of outro yeah, we definitely talked over lunch. I remember the conversation. So um, I could I could start it off. We see you, Tyler. But um, I left field trip after a year and a half. Right? Uh, wasn't certain that was the way. If it was too early for psychedelics to try and be scaled so rapidly, and make more sense to me. I saw microdosing taking off um, as kind of the way into psychedelics, general population. And kind of in the spirit of like zero for intermittent fasting or flow for period track, why not create a companion for microdosing? And so I left, I started creating that, um, doing user research while you're building a product and you know, launching the brand on Instagram called Houston. Uh, in the user research, I kept hearing over and over again, 
somebody microdosed to get off antidepressant or they were curious about microdosing because they don't want to their ADHD. And then um, having people reach out to me through Instagram, oh, I've been on Prozac for 25 years. Like, I hate it, but I can't get off it. I couldn't microdose it. And after uh, sitting in this chair after one particular interview, kind of everything started combining in my head. And I'm like, oh, you look at antidepressants like these. There's this scale of like multivitamin, you know, benign, what's the worst? Maybe it doesn't work, but what's the worst that can happen? Like oxycontin, say where there's that drug is seen as very, very serious. Generally, we're sold on antidepressants that they're almost like multivitamin, right? Oh, COVID is uh, stressing you out. Take this antidepressant. When you're feeling better, you just come on. That day after that interview, antidepressants moved closer to the other side. Oh, this is proper drug. That was, you know, Peter Thiel's seven secret question. What's your secret? Okay, right now. We know antidepressants are actually hard to get off of. So that was the first thing. Um, and then I realized, oh, this is way better than YouTube. And we started doing some research and as of how I knew Tyler from Field Trip and the conversations we had, kind of the complimentary expertise that he had versus me as you can tell by the stories, I reached out to him sitting on a park bench this new idea yeah my mind was was blown at the time um yeah brandon and i worked together a field trip for what two two years before you left yeah a year and a half for me and i don't think he i mean when he came to me with this idea he had, he didn't actually know that i had just gone through this entire experience over those past two years went and uh so yeah went to went to field trip my uh, joined in November. My January New Year's resolution was to quit my antidepressant medication uh, using microdosing psilocybin. So, an app that Brandon later built. Um, and uh, it, you know, long story short, it was it was a disaster. The withdrawal was incredibly difficult. Ended up, you know, just just on a new medication, which was just as hard to get off of, and came with its own, you know, side effects that, um, you know, were just we're just challenging even my life circumstances of trying to have a baby and build a family with my wife. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, it actually, this whole experience of going through withdrawal, like kind of really ripped the bandaid off. I started working with a life coach, um, took my first personality test since high school, which told me that finance was the number one worst job for my personality. Um, and, uh, ended up quitting my job at field trip kind of out of the blue with no plan. Um, six weeks later, give or take, Brandon reached out to me, asking me if I wanted to start a company to help people get off of antidepressants, not knowing any of this, this story himself. And, uh, obviously it was just the perfect kind of next step for me. I'd love to kind of understand maybe that antidepressant space a little bit more like anecdotally, you know, I have a decent amount of friends on them. Like I've even right. considered taking them at some point. I guess, why does Canada have such a high prescription and usage? Why do people use it past that kind of, you know, that three, six month window? I guess I'm just trying to kind of understand a bit more about why that problem exists, why that space. And I guess, do you think in a few more years, we'll kind of reflect on this time period, kind of like all the books and movies about Oxycontin now and how dangerous it is? Do you think we'll have a kind of a similar thing going on? First things first. As far as we can tell, on a one-to-one -one basis, oxycotton is more dangerous. Um, the sheer volumes games, that doesn't 
make antidepressants not dangerous at a population health level. Um, it's one important distinction is a lot of people have confused the idea that because antidepressants aren't addictive, that means you can't get withdrawal. And by people confusing that, I mean almost everybody, patients, doctors, the community as a whole, um, because antidepressants do cause physiological, just a pharmacological truth. So withdrawal is an issue. Um, I guess circling back to why does Canada have um, so many people using antidepressants? In pharma, things kind of, you know, the U.S. is the primary market, and then things trickle down, right? The FDA tends to approve things first, MHRA and and Health Canada. Um, and yeah, bringing me back to my, my pharma days, it's really medical affairs and public relations, right? Like the first step is getting something put as a diagnosable disease, quote unquote, and there's some controversy around that with depression and anxiety. There's a discussion now about obesity. Um, you know, is it a symptom of metabolic dysfunction, not a, necessarily a disease in itself? And jury's slow on that. And how evidence is so muddied by private conflicts makes it actually hard to trust evidence, unfortunately. Um, so when you look at what was done with antidepressants, it's kind of a, a long look. Our co-scientific co-founder, Mark, educated us on the history. There were barbiturates that came out, and it always starts with these things are you know, safe and effective and easy to get off. And barbiturates came out and were marketed to mothers. And then it turns out, oh, they're not safe and they're not actually that effective and they are difficult to get off. And the same story happened with benzodiazepines as well. And that's a lot more in the limelight um, these days. It took until 2019 for the FDA to add mention of withdrawal, particularly withdrawal, uh, in the labels benzodiazepines. And people can actually die withdrawal and so every psychiatric medication kind of has its 30-year cycle right and essence are kind of encroaching on that right now they're kind of encroaching on that right now and um yeah they were seen as very harmless right they were seen as very harmless very effective i know for a fact from pharma the when you look at a, a drug in the real world it always is less and has more side effects than it did in trials. Um, and the effect size of antidepressants in the clinical trials was never that big to begin with. Roughly three points, just less than three points benefit versus placebo on a 52 scale. And that's only studied after six weeks, right? The guidelines recommend six to nine months. We could do a whole episode on this, but basically um, there was, there's good, well-meaning scientists for sure good, well-meaning doctors that are just really under-resourced, especially family doctors, prescribing most of these medications because they need to try and do something for the patient. But the problem is there's this red herring of chemical imbalance, right? This idea that was just a little hypothesis that was picked out of a university and was sold as the core cause of depression. Um, this idea of low serotonin marker, co-founder published a paper on last year that showed that's not true at all. There's no evidence, but and that red herring of the chemical imbalance puts so much emphasis on this biochemical treatment of depression and anxiety and medicalizing that, as Tyler said, often medicalizing normal. And we lost focus of doing things that can sustainably make people feel well, both at, at individual levels, at food system levels, at education levels, at responsible technology levels, and at 
working at a meaningful career level, right? And I mean, Tyler has the personal story. It's so easy to get yeah, I mean, the chemical imbalance thing sparked that in my mind. Yeah. I mean, it's a story that we see told time and time again by our, our clients at Aucho now, right? Is, you know, you, you go to see your doctor in a very difficult time, you know? So, I mean, you look at Canada, you have seasonal depression across the board, for example. Um, you also have great access to primary care here in Canada, um, which is the other, you know, probably factor, but you, you know, you see your doctor, you're most likely told you have serotonin deficiency. I was told I had a chemical balance or serotonin deficiency that was likely to, to be, you know, to blame for these depressive symptoms I was having. Um, it, it's tough to change your mind after that, especially when, you know, you, there is such a strong placebo effect in those first six weeks. Like they do work in the short term, whether it's placebo or not, they work, you know, you, you feel better. Oftentimes you've also gone to your doctor, you know, when you go to your doctor to get a prescription for an antidepressant, you're most likely at one of the lowest points in your life at that time, right? You're, you'll take the help when you can get it. And when that prescription comes, it's, and it, and it works, you know, it's, it's, it really is just the lifesaver for so many. Right. And so the decision to come off of those is then made quite difficult. And especially in the issue we're really tackling at outro is the withdrawal and the mistaking of withdrawal for relapse. Um, you know, we've, Brandon and I have kind of joked, like, it would be incredible if, you know, the pharmaceutical companies who created these drugs did this all meaningfully or on purpose. But if you're taken off of an antidepressant too quickly, you get withdrawal symptoms. And those withdrawal symptoms mimic anxiety and depression, amongst other things, right? So. I'm on this medication for well past the date I was supposed to be. So withdrawal symptoms also increase in severity with the length of treatment, right? So, um, first of all, I've been on this medication for way too long, whether it's, you know, a lack of follow-up does your, you know, when you go to your doctor with an issue, does your doctor actually follow up with you regular timeline to make sure you're doing okay? Most likely not. You're also not going to make the decision on your own. So you've been on it for too long. You come off too fast. It's just the perfect recipe for these severe withdrawal symptoms that mimic the underlying condition. And you go see your doctor at that point, you say, I'm more anxious, I'm more depressed than I ever was before. I'm also experiencing these brain zaps and these other strange feelings in my body. And you're, you know, some doctors don't even believe in brain zaps and these other symptoms. And then you tell them you're depressed and anxious, like, okay, you are relapsing in your condition. We need to put you back on this medication. And so. Kind of the story in a nutshell, we see it time and time again in our client population is, you know, these people have been on the medication for so long, they've tried and failed to come off in the past. Um, and until, you know, outro or until learning about withdrawal or relapse in these patient communities, which were kind of like the, the grassroots movement in, in what we're doing, they hadn't heard of any of this before. And so it's kind of the, that's kind of the recipe for, for the long-term use. Um, and the overprescription, really. Oh, Evan, I was just going to say, because we didn't cover one thing in terms of how the ties would change. Because um, you asked that, obviously, very loaded question, very deep area. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think the benefit of kind of, you know, being inside farming is like understanding how they make these changes um, and then how could we employ that to basically, you know, it's, you know this huge market 
been created over the last several decades. It's like now it's just sitting there and from a problem size and the business size is huge. The number of people that this needs to be addressed in because it's coming out that there's some people might ask, oh, if there's this these withdrawal effects, why take people off anyway? Right. But then there's the acute side effects people experience that reduce their quality of life. Um, dysfunction, emotional numbing, literally impaired cognition. And we're talking in the tens of percent or 50%. It's very underreported. And then there's the long potential long-term effects. Like, you know, there's data out on the overall risk of mortality. That's encroaching numbers that are smoking and opioids and that's what has talking about uh, osteoporosis risk, early onset dementia risk. Actually, this process called tardive dysphoria, which can turn an episodic depression, chemical lying it, into chronic because your brain will get used to exogenous serotonin and therefore won't have to make more of its own. So when you pulled off it, you're now literally chemical so what we employ is um, it's it's taking hold in England a lot now my co-founder Mark who works over there but this hyperbolic tapering based on the science of how antidepressants affect your brain at doses it's kind of like this law of diminishing returns where um, the smaller doses will affect your brain more and then it will kind of teeter off so say a common drug uh, Cipolex in Canada right about Lexapro in the US Alibram Reducing um, dose from 40 milligrams to 20 milligrams, barely any change in brain activity. Reducing your dose from uh, 20 milligrams to 5 milligrams, a bit bigger. Reducing from 5 milligrams to 0 milligrams is, is significant. It's actually 20 times the change. Going from 5 to 0 is 20 times the change than going from 40 to 5. And so doctors have been taking people off linearly because there's been barely any studies on coming off antidepressants. Pharma companies said part of the medical affairs, they're brief and mild, which are all symptoms when in fact true. So people have been stuck as Tyler said on these medications, doctors must for relapse. Um, they have chemical imbalance beyond these things for life. When in fact, if they were just taken off more slowly in a way that follows the general biology, how these things work, they could come off their medication, adopt healthy coping strategies, some lifestyle changes, and live you know, a full connected, sustainable life. So yeah, we hope to, to employ, you know, both creating community, you know, kind of mission around our brand. Um, there's a lot of mission, you know, mission driven people circling around our brand and, um, building out the evidence that's necessary to change minds. Um, both for shut up older care, mm-hmm. we'll change, change hearts with empathy, change minds with data. So kind of burning the candle at both ends there um, to try and start making impacts and you know, presenting at some big conferences uh, on how to get people off medications, building a sustainable business out of it and, you know, building thought leadership networks across Canada and the U.S., various universities. And... I think that's an interesting segue with like the, the tapering and like the, the jump that it takes to drop that, the levels of medication there. I guess it might be a bit straightforward, like, okay, you, you're having these symptoms, you go to your doctor, you get a prescription. Like you were saying, Tyler, maybe the follow-up isn't there or maybe, I guess, where does outro come in? And I'd love to learn a bit more about your solution. Is it like a mix of like 
tech versus like in person or is it like other medications people have to take? I'd love to learn a bit more about, you know, the the front end seems to be a bit more straightforward, but like love to learn a bit more about the outro difference. Um, yeah, it's a fully virtual care model. Um, currently a, a subscription model. Yeah, so currently, you know, early access pricing is $99 a month. And so what that, what that gets you is, you know, your initial evaluation, um, a preparation appointment and a monthly follow-up appointment in terms of the actual care. But then you're also getting access to the actual portal where you're, you know, logging your symptoms, uh, tracking your symptoms and having those symptoms monitored. So, uh, when it comes to the care delivery, you know, that's, that's probably the biggest difference with outro and something that, you know, if you've been part of the Canadian healthcare system before. You know, your, your family doctor just doesn't have access to these tools. You know, you're not, you're not being continuously monitored between appointments, um, especially by somebody who deeply understands those symptoms and can differentiate those symptoms from relapse, um, you know, advise you on the best ways to, to deal with those symptoms as well. Um, yeah, Brandon has a really, really great analogy here. It's kind of you know, the little water weight analogy where, you know, somebody comes to us, um, and they've been thrown these water wings, which is the, the antidepressant medication, right? So, um, you know, you've, you haven't really learned how to swim. A lot of these people, uh, myself included, when I was on my medication, you know, I didn't learn holistic approaches to take care of my mental well-being. You know, I, I worked out and I ate well, um, but I didn't really understand like what, what this all meant as it related back to mental health. And so, you know, what we're trying to do is slowly deflate the water wings and how we do that is with this hyperbolic tapering method that Brandon mentioned earlier. Um, you know, so instead of tapering your medication over two weeks or four weeks, which is the guidance you'll find on most websites and from most primary care doctors out there, you know, we're, we're tapering that medication over six months to a year to two years, depending on how long you've been on the medication for. Um, and over that same time period, as we're deflating those water wings, you're teaching you how to swim. So we have, you know, our outro library example, which is, um, you know, filled with holistic wellness content, um, really teaching people the importance of sleep, nutrition, um, exercise, mindfulness, um, these, you know, holistic approaches to mental health that are not really, you know, the first line of treatment when you go to your doctor's office. In fact, they're, they're, you know, in the eight minute appointments you have with your doctor, there's, there's hardly any discussion of it, let alone coaching or progress monitoring or any of that. So yeah, we're packaging that all into one solution via our app, uh, which is the outro portal and, you know, bringing in these incredible practitioners who are trained specifically in tapering, um, and holistic. Yeah. What, what do you think from like a user experience, I guess, how did you land on, you know, having it like a virtual clinic model? Was that like your idea day one? I guess I'd love to learn a bit more about like, how you think about care from like a holistic perspective, like, is it self self learning and content and like, versus like talking to a medical professional, talking to, you know, you know, managing their medications, I guess like that seems very complex to me. Maybe you two have a lot more experience in that space, but how have you kind of managed that kind of multi from like a, a business strategy perspective and also like a value creation perspective for us to be able to, to focus and do what we do best. Um, and we want to be the experts tapering antidepressants and, and other psychiatric medications, understanding how do we actually personalize these plans and, you know, apply analytics to understand what are the best plans for patients and then how do we intervene in real time. 
Um, so we foundationally, we have a, our, our team just in general is very holistically minded. Um, so that's been great. And we've been able to create like a baseline of, of holistic content. Really, we want to create this. We want to be a partner in an ecosystem where we do what we do best and we can partner with others on content, uh, be able to provide people the best day knowledge on, let's say, sleep hygiene, um, movement, mindfulness, breath work, right? There's enough work, some content thing. We, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Um, even when we think about psychotherapy, we both do psychotherapy as an uh, adjunct service for tapering and on its own for people who are preparing to taper or, or pass a taper and want some support. We also want to build relationships in that world um, so we can have a collab model and think about, and this is a shout out to Martha here and, and framing this very well. We can think of mental health, you know, as more um, than just antidepressants and therapy, um, but more like a, what does mental health programming look like in a way that's holistic in nature? And, and we've really had an emphasis on, on doing that while partnering on that, developing some of the baseline content ourselves and really saying, okay, where can we provide the most value in this? How do you think about kind of growth of kind of like that virtual clinic model and the outro model? Is it really important like partnerships with, you know, like, are you looking to partner with like doctors or medical, other medical service providers? I guess I'd love to learn a bit more about just kind of like that growth strategy from the business? How do you get the word out there? Are there the unique nuances to your space versus others? Well, the, or, the organic aspect is very strong for us that we're seeing in terms of word of mouth and conversion because there's such a story to this and there's so much passion around the situ. Because in all honesty to patients, there's, it's an injustice, right? And, and people can really rally behind those things. Um, so we've done, and we had an article in the Corona Star recently Oh, it's a lot of traction. We did a video with the YouTube channel After School, which has maybe almost 400,000 views now after being out for months. Um, great, com uh, great comment section. And on the other end, it's we're looking at who are, who are the early adopters, right? When we think of that technology adoption curve, because really hyperbolic tapering is a technology, right? It's a method. And some early adopters who would align with us, obviously, the psychedelic space that we came from, where there are people who are inherited with alternatives to mental health. Uh, I mean, this is a therapy practice. Uh, and then you've got, uh, you know, practitioners, therapists who are inherently are offering non-drug approaches to mental health. Um, there's the other holistic health type businesses that I mentioned, breath work, space, et cetera. Um, when it comes to medical doctors, and that's part of the medical affairs side of things, I actually just ask ChatGPT to validate how long is the gap from evidence generation to clinical adoption. Probably accelerated due to tech now, but they say it's about 17 years that it takes for new evidence to be incorporated into this. So it'll, it'll take some time, and it's already started to be adopted in the UK already, which is a great um, you know, validating marker but it'll take some time to develop those key opinion leader relationships, so like the influencers of, of doctors, and start to disseminate this knowledge through general practice. And then we can start to more opening our platform where we're generated, you know, the algorithms with high sensitivity. So other practitioners, mainly PCPs, you know, could benefit from, from our knowledge base to help patients.
I guess, why, why do you think that kind of gap exists, like that 17 year mark? Um, you know, every industry has like laggards and like that whole kind of curve of distribution there. I guess, why do you think that exists more in this space? Is it because it's mental health related and we don't fully understand that yet? I, I guess I'm just kind of curious of like, why does it take so long in the kind of a medical space? For it could depend on the area of medicine as well. Like how big is the unmet need? I was just listening to a podcast on development, new medication on the COVID vaccine and you know how quickly that was developed with urgent need. I mean, there's staffing clinical trials. There's good regulation to make sure things don't come through that could harm patients. Obviously, but things do come through that harms patients. Um, a lot of it, I would say like, medicine is a very, very political place. It's one of the most political institution on earth. I think that's fair to say. So, and it, it can be a bit of, especially when it's, um, you know, they, they have to find a new name for this, but they used to call them me too drugs, where it's a drug that's like sl a slight improvement on the last one. And that's easy to go in. But when you have a really disruptive innovation. That takes a while because it might change a widely held belief in medicine. And it's literally an existential threat to a lot of people. Um, that whole posts of various institutions um, that have been practicing medicine at this time. Um, yeah, so it's an elegant art and a science really in adopting these things. And, and hopefully technology is uh, going to be accelerating that in a responsible way that's leading to you know more benefits. I'd love to jump into the quick fire round and maybe we'll get uh, Tyler to answer the questions first. Then we'll brand them. We'll just have you after. Uh, first question would be, what is your favorite book? And if you can't pick a favorite, maybe just something you're currently reading or have read recently. Yeah, favorite's tough. Favorite's tough. Right now, I mean, I've been trying to get through uh, Gabor Mate, who Brandon mentioned earlier, his new book, The Myth of Normal. Um, just really in line with what we're doing. Um, you know, basically, you know, you know, it's a, it's a piece on the Western healthcare system and how we're, we're failing to address, you know, just how our culture impacts our well-being and our mental health. You know, this assumably normal, you know, this normal culture that really just neglects the role of stress in Western society on, you know, the issues that we're actually trying to solve at OSHA. Um, to not, let's say I've actually, I've, I've picked up Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, again, read it 10 years ago. Brandon mentioned it on a podcast last week. Thought I should pick that up and give that another read. I think that's also just extremely important. Um, you know, that, that search for purpose that, that we're always after and bringing back down to, to life. Um, my favorite book is Perennial Philosophy by Aldous Huxley. Um, if anybody hasn't read Brave New World, by the way, check that out. Kind of related to the outro, but, um, yeah, perennial philosophy is just kind of a collection of wisdom from all types of philosophers, thinkers, religions in the past, commentaries on different aspects of life, but that's time, faith. Um, what I'm, I'm actually, I just started reading uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It's like my night, nighttime reading. It's Philip K. Dick, who prolific sci-fi writer and this this book is the one that Blade Runner was based off of. I'll have to check that out. I've not even heard of that one. Uh Tyler, we'll start with you, but would love to 
know what you're most excited about in the next year personally and professionally and then brandon i'll have you after that uh yeah personally is an easy one uh our uh our second child's due either late 2023 or the first two days of 2024 so on a personal level obviously thrilled about that um professional level really just i mean excited to get to the u.s uh without show um so you know Right now, we're really just trying to, to prove this thing out in Canada. Um, but, you know, the number of people who need this service in the United States is incredible. We see that, you know, people coming through our door every day, just itching to get to, to get to work with us. So I'd say that's the most exciting. Hopefully we can be there in the next. On a personal level for me, I guess I'm starting to think more about my personal life. I think it's quite really been enjoying settling back into Toronto over the last few years. Just started to enjoy the summers. So finding that continuing to work on that work, but, um, same thing as Tyler on the professional side, really excited to get us. It's over, over 50 million people in the U S on antidepressants, 70 million plus on psychiatric medications. Yeah. And there's a lot there, big problem to solve. Um, we really want to develop our, our message and our thought leader. Start spreading the message down there as well. Then last question before I open up the mic to you both to chat about whatever, you know, whether it's outro, whatever you want to chat about, uh, would be a closing question is always, how do you deal with hard times? Um, I, I think this might be kind of an interesting question with all the topics we've been chatting about today. But Tyler, how do you specifically deal with hard times and then brand I think for me i mean i'm really just trying to uh to kind of adopt what we teach at outro in my own life you know in various ways i mean a really just relentless focus on that you know holistic approach you know try not to miss my workouts keep eating healthy you know really try to get to bed at a good time um practicing mindfulness trying to get a uh you know meditation practice going for a while it's tough but making progress and it's just those you know that small progress that's important but yeah and then just really just taking it one step at a time just like our, our tapering methodology like one small step at a time you know go at a rate you can tolerate don't push yourself too hard i think a lot of um you know a lot of us especially in the entrepreneurship space you know it ends up crashing back down if you're not going at a rate you can tolerate um and really taking it one step at a time. We've seen that before. So, you know, both personally and at a business level, make sure you're you're moving with intent. Um, and then you know, when it does all fall down or really just having a bad day, I've got a great wife to, to spend my day too. So, uh, I've recently been getting, last few years, getting in touch with this thing called emotions. Again, after being, being a very cerebral human being. Okay. And I think that's uh, one of the biggest ways i uh find balance in hard times because some of that stuff you know you try, you try to be stoic and all that and push through but as tyler said no rate can tolerate and, and try to find ways to whether it's physical activity or just sharing something with someone or um doing a guided meditation or breath or something like that. being able to like kind of open that valve of any emotional stress that is built that's something been incorporating more and more keep going just just going in the long term 
I'd love to open up the mic to you both. Uh, how can people learn more about Outro or just like anything that you, that you. I mean, we can start with the learning more about Outro. It's an easy one. Um, outro.com is our main website. And then, uh, you know, if you want to skip right to it, there's learn.outro.com where you can really learn more about everything that we practice uh, in more detail via our, our library. Awesome. And yeah, we'll link that in the show notes. So that's easy to uh, reach there. But Tyler and Brandon really appreciate the time today. It's been a really interesting conversation and really appreciate the work you two are doing in this space. You know, I know a lot of people that are on these medications, so I, I, I really find it really impactful what you two are doing. So really appreciate that. Appreciate the time, Evan. Thanks so much for having us. Reach out to us both directly, you know mission-driven and excited about what we're doing. Brandon at Outro.com. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.